Sir Bowper and the Team of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is John Wiseman. Mr. Wiseman is owner-operator of the Dodgers blog, DodgerThoughts.com. He's also a writer for Variety Magazine, for whom he covers television and the television industry. In what follows, Mr. Wiseman and I discuss the topics of crippling self-doubt and learning to deal with failure, a portion uh, of our conversation during which, somewhat surprisingly perhaps, we don't talk about the Los Angeles Dodgers even once. And there we move on to some of the television shows that appeal most to Mr. Wiseman, and in particular look at modern families Phil Dunphy as an aspirational model for fatherhood. Finally, uh, and perhaps somewhat regrettably, we do also talk about the Los Angeles Dodgers. Uh, specifically, Mr. Wiseman comments on what those Dodgers will look like in the post-Frank McCourt era. Uh, the listener will note, please, that if you do, in fact, hear an occasional whooshing sort of sound in the background, uh, that is actually not a product of the recording, but rather ambient noise uh, that I've added for dramatic effect. It's all part of the high-quality product listeners have come to expect from Fangraphs Audio. In fact, it is... Fangraphs Audio, it is John Wiseman, and it begins right now. Um, but with regard to, to um, I guess, uh, spiritual wellness, uh, I've just today uh, read your post on uh, the, the degree to which you are not Phil Dunphy. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's uh, that was partly an attempt at some sort of catharsis to get me, uh, to try to get me through this funk I was in, and in some respects it succeeded. I mean, the objective realities haven't changed, but I sort of needed to just blast some things out uh, that were just... W- really weighing me down it's something i do from time to time somewhat to my embarrassment although also i i you know what the audience i have does seem to enjoy reading or you know they can relate some of them can relate to it some of them find it interesting there are a few people who are absolutely appalled by it (laughs) but uh um, it's just, you know, it's just one of those things I do, and uh, it's one of the reasons the site exists, frankly. I mean, there's all, it's, you know, it's, it might be 90% Dodgers, but it's, you know, the other 10% is pretty important to me, too. Yeah, so. sort of like um, um, like a like a spiritual enema. Is that... <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> as unpleasant as that sounds, it's prob- that's probably accurate. <laughs> No, I actually found, um, it, yeah, it really is striking. And I think probably in the baseball community, in terms of um, unfettered access to to the very core, and, and in particular all the sort of uh, uncertainties and anxieties of the author, I, I think probably I've only ever gotten that, that same feeling from Josh Wilker of uh, Cardboard Gods. I, I assume right. you're familiar with Wilker's work. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But uh, just the degree to which... And some uh, some people... Um, well, I would suggest that a lot of us have those feelings, um, which is not to say that uh, all of us like having those feelings um, or, or that um, in the event that we decided to share them that we would be particularly good at it. I, I think I certainly belong to the latter camp, um, I don't know if I'm necessarily Phil Dunphy either, but 
um, probably my response is um, just to make jokes, I guess, in the face mm -hmm. of in the face of uh, the the specter of um, of uh, death and uh, certain death and uh, you know almost a certain uh, poverty. Uh, laughter um, is 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 the recourse I probably choose. Um, but yeah, but you really uh, you really I mean a catharsis I think is also a, an effective word. That's that's pretty amazing. Uh, that and you say you do that pretty pretty frequently. I don't know about frequently, but. Um it depends. I mean, it just sort of depends how things are going. I mean, and I do do stuff. I mean, I, I talk about stuff in the family. Sometimes it's very lighthearted. I mean, you know, I'll, if something happens with my kids and that I think is funny, I'll post that. I mean, it's not all doom and gloom. Um, but I'm probably good for at least one or two posts a year where I, of existential crisis, you know. Are you, are you prone um, to that just uh, since... Childhood, essentially. Since adulthood. <laughs> so you're totally, was, totally uh, happy child, and then um, as soon yeah. as you realized, uh, what, what became conscious of your own mortality, or the fact that you'd have to support yourself. Um, pretty happy childhood, and yeah, it was sort of, a, a, in a way, a sort of a false sense of security and. Uh, a lack of appreciation of how hard it was going to be, how hard being a grown-up is. You know, I just basically felt, I mean, I was, I had a very lucky childhood and, uh, you know, did not know why that would change at all. <laughs> it's basically and like an argument against, uh, now, did you, did you, I mean, did you get along with your parents and are they got along, You know, got along great with my parents, got along great with my brother got I mean with my sister I had the kind of spats that you might see on the Brady Bunch or something you know I mean it was like you know we would fight but it was something that would be resolved in the at the end of the episode so to speak you know so that was all good other than the fact that I was for most of my childhood really short um, until a growth spurt in high, in, in high school and you know had very little success with girls at that time, I mean, I mean that was my biggest complaint. Other than that, you know, it was, it was good. And it wasn't until I hit my twenties that, um, aside from that, life started to become more complicated for me, and I started to really have doubts about myself. I really didn't. I was raised, you know, like a lot of kids are raised, that you can achieve anything you set out to achieve, and I really. Had, didn't realize that there was a flip side to that until my 20s, which was, no, actually, you can't, I mean, yes, have goals and go for the things you want to go for, but no, it may not all happen for you, and if you're not prepared for that, it's, it's. I mean, again, I'm sure some people are listening to this and going, you know, how ridiculous, you know, I mean, like, but I, if you're not prepared for it, it comes as a big shock. Um, so you're you're, you're a parent. You're a parent, though, right? I'm a, yeah, I have three kids. So is this essentially like an argument? Uh, because your parents loved you and were supportive. I mean, do you, do you think though that there's an argument for uh, somehow um, introducing your your children to failure at a young age? Um, I wouldn't put it that bluntly. Um, there's no way I would actively seek out 
bad things for my kids to have happen. However, I mean, in the smaller moments, um, you look, you, know, you certainly look for teaching opportunities for the kids. Um, in fact, there's actually, I recorded this on Sunday. I haven't watched it yet, but there's an, a Linda Ellerby special on Nickelodeon that's all about failure. I mean, that's in the title, and it's for kids, and I recorded that specifically, actually, to show my kids um, that, you know, what you can learn from failure is the subject of this half-hour special. Um, I mean, my, they have, um, my daughter, who's nine, who's the oldest, has, like, with school, has really high standards for herself that she more or less developed on her own. I mean, we always encourage her and we want her to do well, but she's, she is, as far as school goes, harder on herself than we are on her. So you just never really know what's going to happen. Um, and you, and you just, you just sort of address these things as they come. And I'm definitely concerned for all my kids about how they're going to, um, face adversity going forward. Um, because I'm still learning how to do it. <laughs> and I have not set the best example. Um, so Is panic is panic a lesson that you'd like to impart? I don't think they see me panic. I, I think the panic I keep more or less hidden. But sort of being, um, you know, I can't say, you know, I haven't moped around them or something um, or reacted with anger to things that have happened to me. Um, yeah, they're familiar with my angry side and frankly a way that um, the readers of Dodger Thoughts wouldn't be familiar at all. Um, other than I tell people, I tell people how angry I get with myself and, you know, pe- but I tell it in sort of a elegiac way or something. I don't know, so it doesn't come across quite the same way. Um but yeah, I mean, I, I spend I've spent a lot of time worrying about how my emotions have rubbed off on them in bad ways. On the other hand, I like to think I've done some good stuff raising the kids, so it isn't it isn't all bad. Um, we'll see how it goes. Well, they're not criminals yet, right? They're not criminals. No, they have not run afoul of society um, really at all. That's good. Yeah, I think that's um, that's your first responsibility as a parent is to make sure that they don't. That they don't f up other people's lives. Yeah. Um, and if you could keep it, if at the very least, if you can keep um, their their, um, if you could sort of, I guess, contain or isolate their effing up, that you do it just in their own, so they contain it. You know, it's confined to their own person. Is what I mean to say. Yeah, I mean, like in school, they're they're doing so well both. Academically and socially, um, I mean, my my youngest one's in preschool, but the two older ones I'm talking about, um, and they'll behave in ways. I mean, we not a month or a week goes by where we don't say when they're bickering at each other or at us. You would never do this at school. You would never talk that way to your teacher the way you just talked to us. You would never do it. You know, why are you treating us worse than you treat other people? Yeah, well, it's because they're allowed. That's what family's for. I mean, yeah, exactly. Don't let them hear that, of course. But yeah, family, uh, those are the people you're allowed to treat terribly. No, it's (laughs) tilting at windmills. I mean, you know, there's no, you know, it's ridiculous to even make that comparison, and yet I can't resist doing it. Uh, This is a. 
uh, this is uh, this is one of my favorite discussions. All of, everything we've just mentioned is is my favorite discussion. <laughs> uh, personal personal frailty and weakness. How not to destroy yeah. one's children. Uh, yes. Yeah, that's good. I know. I I don't have. See, I I'm, I'm uh, belong to a slightly different um, demographic in that um, I don't have. Uh, I'm in, uh, 32 years old. I don't have children, or even at. I mean, no legitimate children. I mean, right. illegitimate, right. sprinkled everywhere across this great nation and in several port towns in Africa. But the um, but I love giving advice to parents, um, <laughs> just un- unsolicited advice, just to help them um, with their lives, really. Yeah, yeah. And parents love getting that kind they of They do. From advice. parentless adults, other parentless <laughs> adults, they love receiving it. They do. That's, they, they say, like, thank you. For, that's a gift. That's what they'll say to me. Thank you for your gift. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I want to I want to mention that um, now that post uh, I am not Phil Dunphy uh, is relevant for a number of reasons uh, because you actually and we're going to get to this momentarily. We're also definitely going to talk about the Dodgers momentarily, um, but you all, you write about television for Variety, right? Um, so that for Variety magazine and that and, and it's relevant for that reason. Uh, the other thing I want to bring up is right below that. Um, th- now this is in the, the sort of light. This is in the life page of the DodgerThoughts.com blog. Uh, right below that is a um, is a uh, brief video called "John Wiseman is in the uh, the best shape of his life." Right. And I want to tell you two amazing things about that. One is it's a very amusing uh, post, uh, and the second and probably more relevant thing is that YouTube will do a thing where after you finish one video, uh, they'll uh, suggest some other videos for you to watch. Um, and I don't know oh, if you, I don't know if you know this. It's all women uh, with just beautiful, uh, gigantic asses. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just women who are work in workout clothes, just gigantic, beautiful, muscular, toned asses everywhere. Really. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been. I don't think I tagged the post with anything particularly provocative. I, I think best shape. It's there are they are working out. They're all working out is the idea, and you you. It's called John Wiseman's in the best shape of his life. Well, that's true. I mean, you know, all it was it was just my attempt, my homage to all the spring training posts, so all the all the people who say that they're in that, and uh, um. Yeah, and that was the, like you said, that's the post I did directly before the Phil Dunphy post where I was trying to sort of rev myself up a little bit um, and also show that um, my life isn't a Bergman film and that I do have a lighter side. Yeah, now, that came from, and that was partially as a result of, I, I think, right, Dodger Thoughts moving from ESPN Los Angeles. And I'm not going that's to right. uh, twist your arm uh, um, uh, in terms of uh, trying to, draw out every last detail of this, but could you give just a, a brief summary of how or why that happened? Um, basically, they, they, I mean, it's not a euphemism, they wanted to go in a different direction. They wanted someone who was going to be, um, whose blogging was going to be more ballpark-centric. Um, the kind of stuff that I do most of the time, which is analysis and opinion and reflection, um, as we've discussed, um, was not a priority for them anymore. And they weren't, at the same time, enabling me to leave my day job to do that kind of thing. I mean, I'm all, I'm totally game to do that stuff in addition to what I do, but I can't 
I can't do it for free, <laughs> as the Phil Dunphy post illustrates. So um, it just, I mean, basically they just said, you know, they handed their blog over to their Dodger beat writer, Tony Jackson, who's great with it um, and does that stuff. But essentially is going to be, you know, they they had a Dodger staff of one and a half and they're basically, you know, they cut, I was the half and they cut that out because I guess they felt after two years um, that wasn't important, you know, that wasn't important enough for them to do, um, which, um, you know, it was disappointing. Yeah, I mean, it's not, I guess it's not ideal. Um at the same time, you know, I it it is a it's a strange model in general, and I know during the Dunphy Post, you know, you sort of you, you discussed this uh, to some degree about the places that um, I guess some of your contemporaries have ended up. Um, but yeah, it's hard to say what exactly is normal, right, in terms of the 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 career path of a blogger, like what what precisely that does look like or ought to look like, because there's really no precedent. Well, I mean, I, I'm, and this is part of the sort of self-examination. I mean, I've been, I've not put all my eggs in one basket in a long, long time. I mean, I've been at Variety full time since 2006, and I've, you know, been juggling, you know, from the moment I started Dodger Thoughts in 2002 to today, I've always been juggling another job with it. Um, and the people who are advancing in that in the baseball blogging world that I mentioned, like Aaron Gleeman and uh, Jay Jaffe, I think I mentioned, and a couple others, you know, they, they've dedicated themselves to that. And so it's not like it's a big, giant mystery about why it's happened, why their careers have gone one direction and mine has gone a different one. And I really, I like my variety job, so it's not like I'm aching to get out of it. I like, I like the diversity that I write about. Um, I would be even more diverse if I could. Um, but it's a very horizontal career. I'm, I'm 44 years old, and I've been this way for a good long time now. And uh, it doesn't help you get ahead, which wouldn't matter to me in the slightest if it weren't for the three kids. I mean, if it were, it's not for my ego that I'm trying to get ahead. Although I do have an ego, that's not the part that's filling it. It's really just like I want to not, you know, I want to be able to take my kids places. I want to be able to, t you know, take them on a trip to Washington, D.C. or something, or to, you know, um, not have to nickel and dime their summers or and stuff like that. And uh, so I'm, to this moment, trying to figure out what the best thing for me to do is. And people have offered solution ones. <laughs> actually, but uh, putting them into practice has been is a challenge, and uh, um, so there's a whole level of confusion there. That again, it's probably more personal detail than people, than most people want to know about. But I do think, obviously, that a lot of people go through this kind of stuff where they're trying to figure out just, um, especially when they have a family, what it is, what exactly it is they're supposed to be doing. Um. Yeah, I, I, w with regard uh, to to the, I mean, in this case, I guess the, the listeners or the readers' interest in self-examination, um, that's actually something of which I'm 
it, it, it's actually a, a slight bit of meta commentary on this particular podcast. You will notice that we haven't uh, mentioned the Dodgers yet, or right. only obliquely. I have noticed that, um, and I should just mention to the listener that I'm putting it off because I find it to be an even more painful discussion uh, than all of our um, certain deaths. So, so I was going to continue to put it off right. because I want to talk about uh, television a little bit. Sure. Uh, you you write about television for Variety, and so you have uh, have done since 2006. Is that about right? Well, um, I was hired there as a features editor, which basically meant editing film and TV stories, and then and writing the occasional story. Um, and after the recession in 2008, we had some layoffs, and so um, some duties. I took on some reporting duties as well. So now I spend a lot of my day as a TV reporter, whereas um, when I first started there full-time, it was that was probably a pretty small part of my day. Um, and then, so what does that entail, basically, just knowing what's going on with uh, the next season or what, what shows are in development or that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, for example, right now we're in pilot season and, uh, there, you know, there's dozens of pilots being going into production right now um probably january is when those uh the networks greenlit those pilots right now we're in the thick of casting and there's new casting announcements announcements every day there's there's news every day it's the kind of news that's the baseball equivalent of someone going on the disabled list or someone being designated for assignment or someone being activated or what have you there's a lot of just sort of boilerplate news that you need to get out and then, of course, you try to step back and do features and analysis and the kind of stuff that actually gives you a little perspective on what's going on. The other thing is that I am involved with editing a lot of stories for Oscar season, which just ended. So, um, I mean, that is not exaggerating like a six-month enterprise for us at Variety. And trying to come up with new story ideas over that length of time, can be, it can get to be exhaustive by, exhausting by the end. And I'll get about a month off from that of recovery, and then we'll start prepping for the Emmys probably before the end of March. Again, oh, oh like my another God. five well, or six months period. Oh, oh wow, that's, so, that's a very long time to think about those award shows. Yeah, um. it is. <laughs> so, but, but now, I know that you... Um, you sort of um, hold uh, Phil Dunphy, or, or you sort of, I guess, in, um, invoke him as a kind of archetype, um, and and I and that opens a lot of doors. And, and we, uh, my guess is that we could spend the rest of this podcast and perhaps well uh, um, talking about Modern Family. Um, I don't necessarily want to do that, but I'm curious just to what degree. That uh, I guess to what degree Dunphy in general, like what, what's exciting about that character for you in Modern Family, um, maybe more generally, uh, what, what that show does for you, and is it even in like your top three or top five? It's in my um, top three of comedies, of broadcast comedies, because I know that because I made a list the other day. <laughs> um, Parks and Recreation, and. Uh, the Big Bang Theory, which I think is having a great season, and Modern Family are right now in my, are my three favorite comedies. 
um, then you can get you get into some cable stuff like Louie and stuff, and, and the list gets more a little more complicated. And I like others too, but um, and Phil is a Phil is kind of a big deal for me because Phil is the dad on the show, and he does this thing in the show. It's not just that he's funny. Um, he handles things with such grace, even if it's sort of a slightly ignorant or, you know, ignorance is bliss kind of grace. But he really does, I mean, nothing gets him down for too long. Very little gets him down at all. Nothing gets him down forever. And he, and I, I'm quite aware he's a fictional character. Some people felt they had, they needed to point that out to me. So <laughs> I know that it's, you know, I'm not deluding myself that life is that simple. But um, my wife and I watch it together, and it is, it's sort of aspirational for me. I know I would never be Phil Dunphy, but I'd sure like to be more like him. Um, and that is probably, I mean, I like the show in general. I think there are elements of it that don't quite work as well as others. I still think it's strong. I think a lot of people have sort of lost their love for it a little bit, but... Um, I still think it's a very strong show, but um, Phil is really the heart of that show for me. And um, I guess have also knowing in a way that Ty Burrell spent a long time tr before he got that part. I mean, he, you know, he's not an overnight success by any means, and it doesn't mean he hasn't had moments of success. He's actually had a more diverse career than people realize, but there's that knowledge in, is in the back of my head that even it's it's sort of a meta commentary in its own right that he had to sort of survive and put up with a lot of angst and grief um, before he got to this point in his life, and so it's aspirational for me in that respect as well. He he uh, he also um, if his inside the actor studio appearance or the cast the entire cast appearance uh, is any indication he's an aggressive blinker. I'm not sure if you saw yeah, that. Yeah. I didn't see it, but I do know it. <laughs> yeah, he's a really he's an assertive blinker, uh, which makes me think that even if um, um, you know in the way he conducts himself, perhaps as uh, as the, even the, as the actor is. Uh, uh, it's sort of an optimistic uh, carriage, um, then at least there must be some underlying anxiety because that's typically is, is, is what that's a product of. Um, I have to admit that with regard to that show, um, even though I've never said it to my wife, I have no problem saying it out loud on this podcast, uh, I love Ju Julie Bowen in a way that is probably um, in a, like a way that I want to embrace her, essentially. <laughs> Uh, right. Is that wrong, do you think? Uh, um, I don't think you're the first guy to have those feelings. Yeah, well, good. I have, that that uh, puts, me, puts me at ease a little bit, I guess, yeah. No, not at all. I mean, I think I think her character is, the, is one of the characters that's sort of on the edge of becoming a little too shrill. Um, they've, they, they keep having stories where she's so far... It would be interesting to compare her to the first season and... Uh, Claire and see if this is accurate, but in my mind, um, a lot of her storylines are sort of basically talking her down from the edge, um, and it, it, I feel like they're hitting the same beats a few a few times too many maybe with her, but 
uh, the dynamic in that family is pretty incredible. I mean, I really, I, I, I never get tired of it. Yeah, I think uh, the, the version of Claire that I, I'm probably um, most enthused by is uh, um, made, made apparent in, in one scene in particular. I forget what it is, but um, it's the, the nerdy daughter, whose name is escaping me and it doesn't really matter. Right, Alex. Right, is... Um, uh, she's just sort of figuring out that she can tell her mother that she loves her and um, extract money from her in exchange for favors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, this is one where uh, Claire is dropping off Alex at like the mall with her friends and then uh, yells out the car window that not only that she loves her, but that uh, she should get a training bra for her boobies, I think. Is, I don't know if you remember this scene, uh, but it's just like this perfect act of... Uh, of burning one's child that, that must have a really um, particular and um, satisfaction to it. Uh, did I look forward to a feeling one day when I <laughs> do, do the same thing to my own children? <laughs> right. Um, you mentioned Big Bang Theory. That is a show of which I'm very skeptical, and I've probably seen like a total of 20 minutes of it. Could you, very briefly, could you present an argument for it? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's it definitely doesn't fit my profile. It's the only multi-camera show I think I watch at this point, um, just off the top of my head, and uh, the only CBS comedy that I'm watching and and enjoying. And uh, I was skeptical of it certainly when I when it first came on the air. I think I think it's just very sharp, and I mean, it's got great characters. And the thing they did sort of midway through what's now five years, um, probably starting in season three, is they started incorporating female characters into the show besides uh, Kaylee Cuoco's Penny. And it's become this sort of very rich, instead of just being a a show about nerds, so to speak, which is what it set out to be in a way, it's become this very sort of enlightening or entertaining relationship show. And... There's just elements about it that really work well. They have some really good relationships on the show. And um, I don't know. I'm just thoroughly entertained, especially this season, each time I've watched it. Um, There was probably a point, uh, I don't know, maybe a year or two ago, um, when it seemed like it was in danger of becoming a one-man show because uh, Jim Parsons, who plays Sheldon, was becoming such a breakout character and getting so many laughs, they just kept going to that well a lot. But that's sort of when they made this transition uh, to being a show, much more more of an ensemble show, and I think it's really paid off uh, in big ways. So I would definitely give it a chance. I mean, some shows, you know, take a couple episodes to get sort of get the, into the swing of things with and some shows don't deserve that too. I mean most of the comedies I watch you know I'm not going to give them a second chance based on what I've seen in the first episode but you know with Big Bang if it doesn't hit you right away I would I would stick with it a little if it doesn't hit you after two or three episodes maybe you know it's just not your cup of tea alright I will take that under advisement um, and then the other the uh, another show that you mentioned um which I uh, I would be remiss not to follow up on a little bit is Louie. Um, most of the first two seasons of which uh, I've seen it, and I'm curious as to I mean you know at this point your job is to know about television. Um, is there a show that you can think of that has done 
similar things to Louis, in particular in his ability, or I guess in the seeming of, in the sense that like he doesn't always need uh, or seem to possess the need to entertain the viewer all the time. I, I can remember in particular the beginning of one of his the episodes. It's the one where they're going to visit maybe his aunt or great aunt or something. There's like literally right. like an eight or ten minute. Uh, um, scene that just takes place in the car on the way up there, most of which he's singing like a Who song. Right. That's that. That is a. It's anomalous, and yet the thing that he does, which I, I think is really nice, is you. Um, he, he invites you to come back. He encourages you to come back because you, you get the sense that anything could happen. Yeah, it's pretty unique. I don't know if it's unprecedented, and of course everything is shades of something else. I mean. What Louis does and what Curb Your Enthusiasm does, genre-wise, I don't know if that's so dissimilar, even if, you know, the execution is dissimilar, but there are a few shows out there, certainly, that are willing to have uh, Louis, have the main character just sing along to Who Are You for five minutes with the kids in the back seat, and then end with... Um, I think a grandmother just dying on the floor right in front of them or something like that. Um, I mean, this is the year of the era of dark cable comedies. Um, so again, it's not sort of, it's all on a spectrum, I think, but he's, his show is pretty unique and, you know, it was set out that way. I mean, he basically, it's a, the way FX, if, uh, set up the show with him is basically they gave him, um, I think the figure was $250,000 an episode or something like that for the first season um, and just said, do your show. Didn't offer any notes, I don't think. Um, he had a budget. Uh, don't quote me on that number. But um, he was just, do the show, deliver it, and we'll see what happens with it. And uh, yeah, that's a big risk. And, you, you know, with a big risk, there's a big payoff potentially. Yeah, well, it's, uh, I mean, again, it's, it, if nothing else, even if it's not, you know, um, um, television gold, one second to the next, there is always that sense of potentiality, I guess. Right. Um, it's, uh, it's obviously the kind of thing that I think a lot of us who are out here watching would like to see more of, and it's almost a fantasy, but... For every Louie, there's going to be a lot. If, even if you take that approach, there's going to be a lot of shows that that just don't succeed. I mean, he's got a he's got a vision that he's honed over a, a period of time that it just works for what it is. And of course, the last sitcom he tried to do was Lucky Louie for HBO, which is pretty which is a flop. So it's not like he had a ma has a magic touch or anything. It's just you know. Sometimes you've got things all worked out in the right way, and the timing's right. Right, and it also it should be mentioned, that, uh, to my under to my understanding, that he essentially does <laughs> everything. I mean, he edits the show. Right. He actually just he just has hired an editor okay. for the third season, so he, that model is changing. But it was like it was news that he was actually going to let someone else edit the show. Right. So so the, obviously that's um, that's that's something to note. Um, all right, that, uh, like I said, this this television conversation could last much longer. Um, we should um, just, by virtue of the fact that this is a uh, 
nominally a baseball podcast. Uh, we should probably mention the fact uh, that the Dodgers are a baseball team. Uh, by way of segueing, I'll say that uh, I saw a tweet today, and I'm, I forget, I apologize to whomever tweeted it, but I saw a tweet, something to this effect, um, to state that the Dodgers, who who have Clayton Kershaw and Matt Kemp, two excellent players, have somehow surrounded them with even less talent in 2012 than 2011. Um, I think that was Joe Sheehan. It was Joe Sheehan. Oh, right, right. And I'm, cu- I'm curious as to how you'd re- respond to that just to, to start things off. I don't know if that's necessarily true, and it's not significantly true. I mean, there's not much less talent if it is less. Um, I think they're, they're maybe going to get more help from the minor league system this year. Maybe. Although they did get help in the bullpen last year considerably, and they had Ruby De La Rosa for a while. I mean, they certainly haven't improved themselves. I think you guys put up a story, didn't you, that said they had the 29th best offseason uh, of, of, of all the teams this year. Um, they definitely didn't improve themselves, and it's, it's a little weird. I mean, obviously we're in a weird time where we're waiting for this ownership transition to f- finalize, and there's a considerable amount of hope that that's, you know, that'll be the start of the rebirth. At the same time, they almost got Prince Fielder. I don't think it was for necessarily lack of trying that the Dodger offseason went the way it did. I think they did the sort of stealth pursuit of Fielder, which um, I think I was less shocked by than some other people because it, it always seemed so logical to me that they would go after him. Um even amid even amid the ownership transition because just because you know after that's over you're going to need players i mean people are acting like you shouldn't spend any money because you're trying to sell the team but i think the any owner who's wanting to buy, who wants to buy a team but doesn't want a guy of the caliber of prince fielder or do, who or who doesn't want matt kemp locked up for a multi-year deal is clearly in the wrong business <laughs> so which many of them may be <laughs> yeah, anyway, that's actually yeah, that, that's an interesting point and one that I've probably thought idly before. But it is curious the degree to which um, there, there are a lot of owners who have been successful in whatever um, you know particular business in which they you know have gotten wealthy, uh, and yet they seem to be miserable at owning baseball teams. Well, it's a, you know it's such a different animal as you guys know. I mean, it's you have to. You know, the, just making a profit versus what the product you're putting on the field is, um, it, it's a complicated one, and certainly Frank McCourt proved how complicated it was. I, I think there are, you know, the reason there's such heavy bidding on the Dodgers right now is because of all this TV money that's about to come their way. I mean, just, you know, it's going to be billions of dollars over the next 20 years coming into the Dodgers. In TV or in local TV rights, and you know the most a lot of the people who are bidding for the team are bidding for the team for that reason, not necessarily because they care about whether the Dodgers win a title. I think there's potential for some fans to be in for a rude awakening if the new owner is someone whose whose care about the team on the field is is in is in name only. Um, hopefully it doesn't come to that. 
Um, but you have to decide, you know, whatever the money is going to be, you know, you still set a payroll, you still decide how much you want to devote to international scouting and and signing and farm system and how much you want to devote to stadium refurbishment and all this stuff. And those are all individual decisions that are not, that have multiple answers, that have levels of degree. And so I've been actually someone who, sort of believes that the post-McCourt Dodgers are sort of primed for to have lots of potential, but, you know, I really don't know. I, I really don't know how it's going to go. Do you think that on the dollar, um, at least, you know, per dollar, it, it, you know, especially if the team isn't going to be amongst the highest, um, going to be isn't going to be among the, the, the top ten, whatever, top five, um, um, leaderboard uh, on the leaderboard of payrolls is what I mean to say. I'm I'll use English uh, in right. editing and post post production. But the the point I mean to say is that if they're not going to spend the most money, do you really think that Ned Coletti is the man um, to bring them to the promised land that is the World Series? Um, no, yeah. not particularly. Yeah. I don't think, and I don't think. I'd be surprised if the new owner feels that way beyond 2012, if, assuming they, I mean, unless they have a fantastic 2012 season, um, I'd sort of be surprised. Um, you know, the Dodgers had Dan Evans as general manager when uh, McCord brought the team, and Dan Evans was doing a pretty solid job. Um, and even that, wasn't that didn't protect his job from just basically being a casualty of of new ownership no other reason I, I think Dan Evans was um, he didn't have the reputation of a Theo Epstein or something like that but he was I would say relatively well received among both the media here and the fans I don't know he was just some a guy that I don't think attracted a lot of negative thinking or negative reviews, and yet he was he was gone and gone pretty quickly. Now, as far as Ned's qualifications go, I think I'm not an extremist on Ned. I think I certainly don't think he's great. I certainly don't think he's worthless. Um, I'm highly skeptical of the idea that he's the best possible man for the job, and I would be excited maybe to see someone else have a shot after this time. I mean. The thing about Ned is he seems to do well on at spotting sort of fringe, and by fringe I mean like non-roster kind of talent, like the Takashi Saitos of the world. He's, he's, he and his team in the front office have made some good bets, but um, it's the journeyman contracts like the Juan Uribe contract where he sort of feels like, well, I don't have someone here and I have to get someone, and I'll I'll spend what I have to spend to get that person rather than essentially doing what the Dodgers ended up having last year, which was, I mean, Aaron Miles ended up getting around 500 plate appearances for the Dodgers last year and got paid under a million dollars. And that happened because Juan Uribe was hurt, but that could have happened anyway. You know, that could have been the plan, and it wouldn't have been a great plan, but it would be a better plan than committing $21 million to on your eBay. I think that's the kind of stuff that Ned does that ends up shooting himself in the foot. Those mid-range gambles don't – he's got a 
a pretty mixed batting average on those. Yeah, well, there. I mean, the, that is dangerous. I mean, Juan Uribe is both uh, older now. Well, I, actually, he's not as old as I thought, but he seems old. <laughs> <laughs> he seems old, and uh, I, I mean, he's never, you know, for the majority of his career, his strengths have been that he's been a, um, a decent fielding and power hitting shortstop. Um, and but to to move that to third base. In the fact that he doesn't really have like a very well-rounded game, um, problematic. I, I mean, I guess for your sake as a fan and writer of the team, it, I hope Juan Uribe has a fantastic 2012. But it is a strange. Was it three years? 21 million? Is that what you're saying? I think that's right. Oh, I, mean, I don't have it in God. front of me. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's questionable. I guess they don't really have a lot of depth in the organization at third base. I mean, Russ, Russ. Russ no. Mitchell. Russ Mitchell, but he's not even really a third baseman, right? Well, he's a third baseman, but he's not. He's not. He's not a real prospect. You know, he's a guy who's who you call up when you need to call up someone to fill that spot. And uh, I mean, he's another best shape of his life candidate for this season, as far as that goes. Like he's he had the quote this week that you know he was primed and he was you know he was motivated and all this stuff. Um, but, you know, he's not – the Dodgers are, are actually pretty strong on pitching prospects. There's a lot of depth there. But the, with position players, it's it's very thin right now. Right. Do you know who's a, a player who's, at least for a couple years now, uh, has been very interesting to me, not necessarily because he's very good, but because he has sort of a strange skill set, and um, is Brian Cavazos Galvez? Galvez? Uh-huh. Is that am I saying his name anywhere near correctly? Yeah, your guess. I think that sounds right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now, <laughs> I think he graduated maybe from the University of New Mexico, and he has um, like a weird sort of um, athletic or toolsy sort of profile. Um, very little in the way of plate discipline, uh, and yet hasn't like completely failed at any level. Do you, I mean, do you foresee him getting any opportunities? I mean, they have guys like that that have that are skilled in one respect and then have sort of fatal flaws if this were like, you know, uh, some sort of comic book <laughs> where, you know, each week a new problem is going to be exploited for each of these characters. Um, Alfredo Saverio is considered by a lot of people to be the top um, position player prospect for the Dodgers, but he, uh, you know, he, he walks like 30 times a season, for example, and he, and you sort of sit there and going, well, how's he going to do it in the majors if he's doing that? And he's 24 already. So, uh, you know, the, it's a work in progress. I mean, D. Gordon's going to be the starting shortstop this year, and there's still major concerns about his on-base ability. Um, so, you know, we'll have to see what happens. Well, at least we know about Gordon, I guess, that, uh, I mean, he's fast, and he's got a decent contact abilities, I, if I'm not mistaken. So, uh, you know, maybe I mean, he's young. So, you know, there's, uh, there, you know, there's hope. I mean, he, he should, and he's playing shortstop. So at least you know he, he's got the potential of being a contributor defensively. His speed is unbelievable. Um, he really might steal 70 to 80 bases this year. I, I don't think that's an exaggeration. Even if he, even with a 300 on base percentage, 
uh, let alone what might happen if you somehow got it up to 340 or 350. But, you know, I, I don't, again, I don't know if you want that to be your number one prospect. Right. Yeah. Um, I guess you could say uh, Rubby De La Rosa looked uh, very promising in his brief time, and I think that he kind of he came out of not nowhere, but um, I think that he broke out uh, in the minors last year. Is that accurate to say? He was the 2010 Dodgers minor league pitcher of the year. That was his, in terms of the farm system, that was his real breakout year, and it came pretty suddenly. Um, and the ascension continued last year. I mean, didn't think we, at this time last year, I didn't think we'd see him before rosters expanded in September. But he had a, he really impressed people in spring training. And I, um, the day before opening day, I was uh, I was at Dodger Stadium and I was interviewing Oral Hershiser and Rick Honeycutt, who's the Dodgers pitching coach, came over. You know they were teammates and uh, they started talking and you know they just started talking shop basically. And uh, Ruby De La Rosa's name came up and uh, Honeycutt compared him not unfavorably to Pedro Martinez. That was before the 2011 season began and and sure enough. Uh, De La Rosa really started out pitching well and got a call-up um, by summertime. And, you know, now he's had Tommy John surgery and will, and will reboot, basically. But there, I mean, this is a guy, for example, when, who's expected to be pitching in games again uh, by July and, uh, you know, probably in the minors again to start. But, I mean, I'm sure he's counted on to be in the 2013 starting rotation. Um and with real, I mean, with real star potential. And then they have Zach Lee in the minors, who, again, I don't know if he's going to, you know, it's asking a lot to ask him to be another Clayton Kershaw, but he's another guy who could be a frontline starting pitcher. If Chad Billingsley is your number four starter, that's not going to be a bad rotation, I don't think. Right. Well, uh, here's to hoping, uh, for your sake and for uh, all uh, Angelinos everywhere, I guess. Uh, that That's the case. Um, I, I'm glad that you are the one who gets to think about or has to think about the Dodgers all the time and not me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I wonder if that's such a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, here, I'm a, I'll let you go and um, uh, worry about um, your place in this world, John Wiseman. But uh, for the time being, uh, let it be known that uh, your presence on... Uh, this podcast has been much appreciated, and uh, I had a lot of fun. Oh, I did too. That was great. All right, cool. Well, uh, feel free to stick around, uh, and we'll have uh, some post-pod conversation too. Uh, in the meantime, though, I'll thank you. Uh, so for uh, John Wiseman, I am, and will continue to be Karst Stooley, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. Fangraphs Audio.